0: Okay, we are, of course, uh, working through the book of John. We're going to finish up John 17 this morning. Now, uh, I want you to know, obviously, we've spent months working through John, and we've got probably a bit over a month left. Um, And if I were forced to, if someone said, uh, we want you to teach out of John, but you can only teach one of all those teachings... This would be the one. Now, I don't say that because I expect this is going to be the best one. I don't want to raise expectations unnecessarily. I say that because I think this is going to be the most important one. Okay? So, uh, just keep that in mind. I think this is, for us in this day, the most important thing we need to hear out of the book of John. And it is, of course, the prayer of Jesus. The whole chapter, all of chapter 17 is a prayer of Jesus, but this part at the end is where Jesus prays for us. So now it gets personal, right? Uh, We, in some way, are supposed to be the answer to this prayer. Um, Jesus is praying to the Father. How many of you think there is an excellent chance this prayer will get answered? Yeah. And so we should ponder what that looks like. Because we might be involved. Our cooperation or partnership or participation uh, might be involved in the answer to this prayer. Amen? So, uh, let's begin to look at it. and we're, It's just seven verses here at the end. We're going to start with verse 20 and go through verse 26. And I'm just going to take them for the most part one at a time. Verse 20 uh, Jesus, remember uh, the verses just before this, was praying specifically for the apostles, for those who had been following him. And now he extends that. He says, I do not pray for these alone, that these being those apostles, uh, but, those, uh, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. How many of you have believed in Jesus through the word of one of these guys? All right, most of you. Some of you need to get born again. Okay. So this prayer is for all believers throughout history who would believe through the word of the sent ones. And I love in verse 18, we just read uh, just uh, last time we spoke that Jesus said, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So, in the same way Jesus said, I speak the words of the Father when the Father sent him into the world, the apostles came saying, we're speaking the words of Jesus, and people are getting saved because of the words of Jesus. So, again, it's just another example of how the sent ones, the Word, uh, works for salvation. And now we are speaking not only the words of the Father and the words of Jesus, but the words of these sent ones to get people saved. Right? Pretty cool. All right, so we know what it's about And we're going to get into it. And there are a couple of verses that are just really straightforward, but it's so important that we grasp this. It's not hard to understand, uh, but there's a depth to it I really want us to get. Because uh, I think if the church ever gets this and really applies it, we could be pretty super dangerous to, you know, uh, the devils and things like that. We don't want to be dangerous in general, uh, just to the kingdom of darkness, right? Okay, good. So, verse 21. So, this is what he begins to pray when he's praying for us. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, let's unpack this. His prayer is that we would be one, that we would be in unity, and I want us to be very clear He's saying, and you got to see this, he's saying, I want Trinitarian unity. Father, I'm praying that they'll be one like we are one. He's not praying that we'll be in unity, that we'll be in agreement, that we'll get along. He's praying, I pray they'll be one like we are one. Remember how they are one? They've dwelt together in perfect unity for all eternity. And so he's not calling us just to agreement. Just to unity, he's saying, Father, my prayer is that the church will be a part of the unity that we are already in. They will be in this oneness with us. It's way higher than just getting along and having the same doctrine. You understand? He's calling us to Trinitarian unity. So it's not enough that we are unified about Him. You understand? It's more than that. And it's this. He says in verse 21, I in you that they also may be one in us. Where? In the, Trinity. in the Trinity. Is it enough to be one in this room? Resoundingly, no. Is it enough to be one in doctrine, in agreement? No. I want you to see what he's saying here. It's not just about agreeing together about what the Bible says or about what Jesus says. It's about coming together in oneness in him, in him. This is again, a simple concept, but so important. And it's so important that we don't overlook this, that the church actually uh, pursues doing this, coming together in Trinitarian unity In Him. It's not a doctrine based unity. It's a love based unity, as we're going to see as we move on. But the important thing that we see is that it's in Him. He is the place of this unity. In Ephesians 1, verse 10, Paul says that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, that's a fancy word for saying at the end of all this, this is where we're headed, right? Where are we headed? He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. You see it? Everything. There will come a time when all of creation will be gathered together, everything in heaven, everything in earth, in him. Anything that doesn't want to be in him will be dealt with somewhere else. You understand? And so we got to see that this in Him thing is a big deal. He is the place of unity. It is not a doctrinal unity. It is not a get-along-with-each-other unity. There is a place for our unity. He is the clubhouse. He is the meeting place. Jesus is the place of unity. Our unity must be in Him. We must come together in Him. We must meet together in Him. And this is what he was talking about as we've said, we just keep going back to this in John 14:2, I go to make a dwelling place for you in the Father. John 14:23, The Father and I are going to come and make a dwelling place for ourselves in you. John 15:4, Abide in me in that dwelling place and I in you. Keep me in the dwelling place we made in you for us. Did you catch all that? So it's all about this dwelling place, and it's all about us abiding, meeting together, underlined together, in this dwelling place. We are called, Jesus is praying, that we would be one in the same way that Godhead is one, and that we would experience that oneness in the dwelling place, together, in Him. And I said again, underlined together, that's why it's such a big deal that we worship and pray together. Why worship? Because Psalm 22 says God inhabits praises. He dwells in them. So if we praise and God goes, well, I'm gonna go stand there, what do we get? We get the meeting place and we're together. That's why we like prayer meetings, corporate prayer meetings, not just praying at home. uh, Because uh, Matthew 18 says that we're two or more gathered in my name. There I am in the midst. So we go, well, all we got to do is get a few people praying and Jesus will come. And now we're in that dwelling place together with him. I, again, I keep underlining the together. Guys, it's so important that we go to the dwelling place together. Is it important that you go to the dwelling place individually? Yes. Is it important that you worship at your house? Yes. Is it important that you have your prayer time in the closet alone with just you and God? Yes. But it is so important that we go to the dwelling place together, that we experience Trinitarian unity together. All right? And so, uh, in fact, it is so important that the rest of verse 21, he says, uh, that the world may believe that you sent me. In other words, our witness to the world is our ability to dwell together in unity in the Godhead. It's going to cause the world to go, oh, God sent these people. God sent Jesus. Look at what Jesus does to people that dwell with him. Right? Okay. So it gets more exciting. Uh, I'm going to go through this pretty quick, and then I'm going to get something at the end. Uh, But I I just want to beat this drum really hard because I want us to understand how important it is that we enter into the dwelling place together corporately uh, as often as we can. So verse 22, and he says, And the glory which you gave me, I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. Now, I'm going to actually come back to this concept. I want to get through all this, and then I'm going to come back and really hit this glory thing at the end. So I'm just going to point out two things for now, and remember, we'll come back in case you feel dissatisfied. Um, The first is this. It's the same glory. This should be a drop the mic, blow your mind moment. The glory Jesus is speaking to the Father, the glory you gave me. This is the glory that the Father has given Jesus. Does everybody got a handle on that? What's he say next? The glory that you have given me, I have given them. What glory do you have? The glory that God gave to Jesus. Wow. Yeah. This should make a difference. We need to get this kind of glory to show up, amen? And the other thing, the second thing I want you to see, and we're going to talk about this later, is he says, I've given them this glory that they may be one as we are one, that they may enter into this Trinitarian unity. Or in other words, the glory that he has given us somehow facilitates this unity. That It's key to us entering into this unity that is the answer to his prayer. We're going to talk about that later. Hang on to that. Don't lose that, okay? All right. So, going on, verse 23. I and them, and you and me, again, he's just going back over and over and over this Trinitarian <laughs> dwelling place. I and them, and you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. Do you realize God's perfecting us? Trying to make us perfect? Amen. Now, He's perfecting us in this place of oneness. They may be made perfect in one. He's not perfecting you and you and you and you and you. He's perfecting us as we come together in this place of oneness. Right? That they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. There's a bunch here, so we'll spend a little bit more time on this. First... We are perfected together in the dwelling place. You are not being perfected apart. In fact, he even talks about how the saints who've gone before, he talks in Hebrews about how they won't be perfected apart from us, that it's all together. And so, again, it's important that we're coming together into this dwelling place because it's there in that unity in that Trinitarian oneness, that God is making us perfect. He's doing something to perfect us there. All right? Now, incidentally, uh, there's, I, I always find it interesting in the New Testament that there are very little descriptions of church services, and my theory is that the reason is God said, for God's sake, none of the apostles write down what you did at church because they'll never do it a different way for the next 2,000 years. Right? Right? <laughs> They'll go, "That's how you do church. That's how they did it in Ephesus." And you know right. So I think it's intentional. But the one place he does give us the pattern for church is in Ephesians 4. And here it is. And I want you to note this. I want you to be thinking about how we are perfected together, as we are joined together, as we are made one in Trinitarian unity in the dwelling place. Think about that as I read through this and kind of emphasize a few of the words that we're underlying says, Ephesians 4, he's given us, it starts with he's given us apostles and pastors and teachers and, you know, guys that work at the church uh, to do something. What are they supposed to do? Or to to equip the church until a certain point. So it's the point that we're looking at. Till we all come to the unity of the faith. There's that unity thing. And the knowledge of Son of God to a perfect man being perfected to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I want to talk about this a little more in a minute. He's trying to perfect us for a reason. He's trying to perfect us so that we can express Christ fully. As he perfects it, now again, you and you and you and me, none of us are going to express Christ fully. But as he perfects us, we can express Christ fully. That's what he's after, right? So... To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up. Just grow up, just get mature? No. May grow up in all things into him. What are we growing up into? Into Jesus, who is the dwelling place get it? See how this all fits? So we're growing up into him, who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effectiveness by which every part does its share, causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the anointed one. You experience his fullness by being connected to him and the body. Right? Amen. You see it? We dwell together in him. If, you, if I take my finger and cut it off and stick it on my head, it no longer lives. But it's connected to the head. I can tape it right on there. <laughs> nope. It needs my arm and... All that stuff. You understand what he's saying here? All right. So, this is the plan. This is the Ephesians 4 plan that we are perfected together as we enter into this dwelling place in Him together. All right. Now, he goes on uh, in verse 23. I want to address the end part of the verse. And he says, um, that the world may know that you have sent me, again, so it's talking about our witness, right? That he's doing this so that we are a witness. Oops, I lost my Bible. There it is. Um, Come back. All right, there we go. He's doing this so that we'll be a witness, right, in the world, Um, that they may, uh, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them As you have loved me. Or in other words, our witness is what? That the world may know that you sent me and about your love, Father. So he's saying specifically here, not just that our oneness is a witness, but our expression of the Father's love is a witness. In other words, our witness is a manifestation of the Father's love. You understand that? So we're entering into this dwelling place. So that we can experience the Father's love, so that we can manifest the Father's love. Now, one other thing. In the same way we saw that the glory we received was the same glory as Jesus, we don't want to overlook what this verse says. Again, it's a drop the mic, blow your mind moment. And have loved them. Who's them? You. As you have loved me. Who's you? You. Father? Who's me? Jesus. you understand what he's saying there? The Father loves you exactly like he loves Jesus. Wow. Now, we already read in John 15, 9, Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. We already know that Jesus loves us like the Father, and that was pretty impressive. But the Father loves us like he loves Jesus. It's like, it's almost like God has only one level of love and it's all in, Amen. Yeah. right? But I don't know what else to say about that other than it should blow our minds, that the Father loves us in the same way He loves Jesus. It's the same love. And what this is, is an invitation to witness the Father's love and to manifest it and to uh, express it as our witness. It's, uh, I talked last time about, uh, I'm going to call it the Shema experience. I talked about what I call the Our Father in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, and mind, and soul, and strength. Now, when he says the Lord is one, he's already called himself us several times in the book of Genesis, way before he gets to the Shema. So we know he's not talking about uh, quantity. Or monotheism. He's talking about union. The Lord is one. I want you to see from this passage in John 17 that when the Lord says the Lord, that we are one, he's saying we are one in love. They're synonymous. And so that's the reason in the Shema, he says, the, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. He's saying we are one in love. We intensely love one another. Hear, O Israel, we are united in intense love, and you should also love us. That's what he's saying, right? And so what's happening is we have been invited into that Trinitarian love fest. That's what Ephesians 1, 6 says when it says, You have been accepted in the Beloved. beloved." That's what he calls it. What's What's the Godhead? What's the environment there? Well, that's the Beloved. We just love. That's what we do. And you can come on in. And so all this passage is saying is, as we are perfected together in his dwelling place, we go there, we experience the love of the Father and the love of Jesus, which are identical, and they're identical towards us. And then we begin to manifest this love as a witness. You with me? Now, Just because I really want to drive this point home, I'm going to skip to verse 26. I'm going to change the order that Jesus prayed in, uh, just, you know, because I can. Uh, So bear with me. We'll get back to verse 24 and 25 at the end. But I'm going to skip down to 26 just to beat this drum because it really ties to verse 23. In verse 26, he says, And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be, in them, and I in them. You see it? And so, he's saying, I've declared your name. We saw in verse 6, Jesus started out saying, I've declared or manifested your name. Um, And we talked about that, that he's not just saying, this is God's name. He's manifesting God's character, God's nature, everything about God. He is the exact representation of the Father. And so, he's saying here, I've represented you fully. I've represented your love and your character and your nature. And I will continue to do it to the end that the love which you love me may be in them. In other words, he has manifested the Father so that we could learn to love, so that we could be his witness. Let me say that again. He has drawn us into the Godhead to manifest the love of the Father so that we could learn to love like him and be his witness. That's it. Our entire job description you can boil down to learn to love like the Godhead. How? By dwelling together in that beloved, in that place of love, in the Godhead. By experiencing that. That's what he's saying. You getting this? Not hard to understand, but profound And as we begin to look at this way, we go, oh, the church has some work to do, don't we? I have some work to do in my own heart, don't I? And so we begin to see that, that our witness is to manifest the Father's love, to learn how to love. In fact, he started this whole thing, this whole conversation right at the end of John chapter 13, um, verses 34 and 35, when he said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You love, I love you like the Father loved me. The Father loves you like he loves me. Now we want you to love like us. So uh, the new commandment, love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then verse 35, by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see it? Just learn to love, and then people are going to know about me. Come into the Godhead, experience my love, and then go out and display that. And it, people will go, oh, that's God. Simple plan, right? All we got to do is learn to love like God. Uh, yeah, like that. That's all. Uh, now, just, this is a bonus in Ephesians 3. I just want to give you this as a bonus and not getting this out of John. Learning to love like Jesus leads to his fullness. Remember we saw the end game in Ephesians 4 is he's trying to bring us to the fullness of Christ, to the full expression of Christ, his church in the earth, fully expressing Jesus. Well, apparently a prerequisite to that is learning to love like Jesus. So when we get annoyed that we aren't expressing the fullness of Christ, it may be an indication that we haven't learned to love enough yet. I'm just saying. Uh, That's just for me. Uh, You guys are probably fine. (laughs) Ephesians 3, Paul prays this prayer, verses 17 through 19. He prays that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. That's that dwelling place again, right? Christ dwelling in us. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, that love has to be our foundation. We are rooted and grounded in it. The one thing we have down is the love thing may be able to comprehend with all the saints whereas the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge to understand the dimensions of the love of Christ which you can't really grasp anyway but just keep trying. Passes knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see it? Learning to love is the way to fullness. I know We talk about it. I know uh, the church is going, we need the stuff. We need the presence of God. We need the activity of God. We need to heal the sick and raise the dead and multiply cookies and stuff like that, right? We need the fullness. Well, how do we get there? We can't ignore how we get there, dwelling together in him, learning how to love like he loves. That's what leads to it. So, let's finish up verses 24 and 25. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. Why? Why does he want us with him where he is? Well, let's see what he says. Um, I lost my place. Oh, there it is. That they may behold my glory which you have given me. For you have loved me before the foundation of the world. He says, Lord, I want them to be with me where I am so that they can behold my glory so they will begin to grasp how much you have loved me throughout eternity. You follow that? I want them to be with me. They need to see my glory so they can grasp how much you love me, Father, because they need to know how much you love them because it's the same. And so beholding Jesus' glory, this ties us back to verse 23, somehow re- reveals the Father's love to us. And I will just add this, transforms us. And I get that out of Second Corinthians 3.18. You guys probably are very familiar with this verse, but let's read it again in light of what we're talking about. But we all, with, one, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What did Jesus say? He wanted us to behold. He wanted us to be with him so we could behold his glory. Right? And he says, as we do that, As we behold the glory of the Lord, we're being transformed into the same image, the same glory, the glory that the Father has given me, I've given you. You see it? As we behold it, we're transformed into it from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Make sense? You see it? Simple, right? That's all we got to do. Well, what this needs now is an understanding of what we mean by glory, because glory can be a vague term. And if I say, uh, you know, the glory of God, you might be thinking half a dozen different things. So let's talk about that. So what I want to do, I want to tell you a story uh, that comes out of this passage uh, for me personally, specifically John 17, 21 and 22. Now, uh, what happens is, Sometimes, and this is a good idea, you should do this. Sometimes, when I'm reading the Bible just to make it more fun, I will actually, and this is radical, I'll actually talk to Jesus about the things he said. Uh, I'll have a dialogue over, almost like it was a letter written to me, and I could talk to the author. Yeah. So, I will talk to him. I will dialogue over what I'm reading. I'll just pause and go, hey, God, what's that mean? Or, and sometimes he tells me stuff. And, uh, or, you know, hey, God, I'd like that. Or, hey, God, that makes me nervous, uh, you know, right? So this is one of those times where I'm dialoguing, and I'm dialoguing over John 17. And I read verse 21. Now, I have, for a long time, and this was, this was, this was I don't know, maybe 20 years ago. It's a long time. I was, I was still a youth pastor when I, did, when I got this. And uh, I've been all about unity for a long time, so I've always loved this passage. And so I'm reading John, 20, uh, John seventeen twenty-one, 21, um, that they may be one as we are one, the unity thing. And, and I'm being a little snarky with God because now I can do that because that's me and God knows and, you know, uh, so, you know, don't try being snarky with God. Because, I don't know. It worked this time. It's probably not a good idea, but I was being snarky. And so I go, God, I'm reading John 17, and I said, it says here that the church is going to be one as you guys are one. I said, uh, I believe you're going to answer this prayer, but I don't have an idea how. I said, I can't even picture a church being one, let alone the church being one. How are you going to do that? Right? And I'm not really expecting an answer because I'm being snarky. Uh, but, and God... Just jumps into the conversation. He goes, read the next verse. I went, okay, I'll bite. And it says, the glory you've given me, I've given them, that they may be one. And so I can, you know, I'm intelligent enough to figure out it has something to do with this glory. So I go, okay. What's that mean? And here's what he said. And it was revelational to me. He said, I'm going to pour out my glory, and everybody's going to be wrong. And I went, dang it, that could work. (laughs) We could get united over what screw-ups we are. How Every one of us is wrong about God. Now, to be fair, I didn't interpret it correctly at first. I only got part of it, and I want to go through that with you. There are, I believe, two essential revelations of the Trinity that every believer needs to have. And the first one is a revelation of his holiness. And this is where I went with this. My thinking was, uh, oh, he's going to part his glory and everybody's going to be wrong. We're all going to go, oh, we are so sinful. We can't possibly have any reason to judge each other. We might as well just be united. You know? And I thought that's what he meant. And I think in part, uh, he did. That's part of it. Uh, And the reason was of an experience I'd had, because as soon as he said that to me, my mind went to this experience. And here's the experience. I was at a, and you do need this revelation of God's holiness. I was at a men's retreat. And what we used to do, we used to do men's retreats uh, here where we do multi-church men's retreats, and the pastors would go down a day early, and we'd pray together. And on one of these, and this is, for me at least, super rare, guys, I've, in 39 years of being a Christian... I've had this experience I'm getting ready to describe to you exactly twice and for an hour or so, Um, but it was profound. So uh, we're down there and we're praying, and the presence of God comes, and he comes, and I don't know how to describe it other than he's fully expressing his holiness. And I can't describe what that's like. I can tell you how I responded to it. I was laying on my face because it felt like that was as low as I could get. And uh, now, don't get me wrong. I'm not afraid. I'm loving being there. I'm loving his presence. But I am so aware of how holy he is. I am laying on my face going, I'm staying here as long as he stays. This is awesome. But I can't think. I, not I can't think. I don't want to think. I'm trying to turn my brain off. Because, and it's not like I'm having, every time I think, I'm having wicked thoughts or evil thoughts, I'm just aware that he is so holy that all my thoughts are just foolishness. That I'm I'm like, it's not even appropriate to let my, I can't give my brain any leash, not a bit, because it just all ends up, well, I can see where that's heading to pride, and I can see where that's heading to that, and that's heading to that, and I just, I'm, I'm literally laying there trying not to think enjoying the presence of God, aware that he is holy. And what that did for me, and I had one other time right up here, one time after youth for about an hour, it was like God, it felt like he just set his throne right there, and we we were just all on our faces and just quiet. And what you come away with in that experience, in that revelation of the holiness of God, is, oh, we are all (laughs) really sinful, you know, the degree, you know, it's, it looks good. Well, you know, God's holy and, uh, you know, I'm this good, but you're only this good. I'm twice as this good as you are. Well, it's not like that. It's like God's holy, uh, see, orbit, you know, you know, way up there, millions of miles. And, you know, I'm this good and you're only this good. It really doesn't make any difference. That's what it's like. You're just going, oh, we're all just not even close, right? And so we need that revelation of God's holiness. It's what we saw in John 8 when the woman caught in adultery was brought before Jesus. And he said, sure, let's throw rocks. Whoever has no sin, start. And what happened? Now, I don't know what else was going on. I don't know what he wrote. I don't know what kind of presence was there. But everybody dropped their rock and wandered off. No one was ready to condemn this woman, caught in adultery, hands down, guilty. And stoning was the prescribed punishment. No one did it because they had a revelation of God's holiness, right? It's what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah chapter 6 when he said, woe is me. He saw God high and lifted up. Woe is me. Now, in Isaiah chapter 5, you asked Isaiah how you doing? He'd probably gone. I'm doing pretty good. We got Uzziah's an awesome king. Things are going well. I'm the prophet in Israel. Uh, you know, uh, church is good. Chapter six. Oh dear God, I am wicked, and everyone I know is wicked. I I have unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. You understand. What the revelation of the holiness of God does. That's, I think, what led Isaiah to write in chapter 64, verse 6 all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. And he's talking about really disgusting filthy rags. Our righteousness is like that, not our sin, our righteousness. You get it? That's what I was experiencing. And that's what I thought God was talking about when he said, I'm going to pour out my glory and is going to be wrong. I thought, oh, it's going to be one of, those, uh, one of those moments like I had at that retreat. We're all going to be so convicted of how wicked we are that we'll just quit arguing with each other, right? And again, that's part of it. We do need that revelation, but that wasn't what he was talking about. So years later, Stuart and I are talking and we're talking about this revelation I'd had about John 17, and Stuart says, uh, and you've you got to pay attention, sometimes Stuart just talks, and sometimes you can tell he's being a little prophetic, but he, he, he's, he's very careful about not, you know, kind of veiling it, so uh, I was like, he says it in kind of his prophetic way. Uh, I think there's more. He goes, you've got to go back to God on that. I think there's more. I went, okay. Sounds good. So I went back, and I said, God, Stuart thinks there's more? Uh, is there more? And immediately, what came to mind was, well, what does it mean to part of his glory? And I thought, wait a minute. Wasn't there a guy in the Bible who asked to see your glory, and didn't you show it to him? Wasn't his name Moses? Couldn't I just go read about that and see what your glory is? And it was as if God went, duh. So uh, I did. So I went and read Exodus 33. 18 and 19. Let's read that. And he said, Please show me your glory. Moses says, God, show me your glory. What's God say? Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And I went. The other revelation, the second revelation, we need a revelation of the holiness of God, but we really need a revelation of the goodness of God. That's what he was talking about when he says, I'm going to pour out my glory. His glory is his goodness. So when we read verse 24 and we talk about beholding his glory, we're talking about beholding his goodness, entering into the dwelling place together and beholding the goodness of the Lord changes us into the same goodness, the same glory. That was the revelation that God wanted to give me. That's what I needed to behold. And just for fun, let's go ahead and go to Exodus 34, where God does show him his glory. Uh, remember, he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock, and he puts his hand by him, and he walks by, and he says, you can't look at my face, that'll kill you, but you can look at my backside while I'm walking away. And so... That's what Moses does, and as God walks by, he proclaims his glory. Let's listen to it. Exodus thirty-four, six and seven. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy and for thousands, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Isn't that awesome. That's his glory. He walked by and proclaimed his glory. And it's just his goodness. It's his mercy. It's his forgiveness. It's his graciousness. And that's what we're supposed to behold and gaze on and be changed into that's going to cause us to learn how to love like Jesus and the Father love. Are you with me? Yes. So, to sum all that up, when Jesus said, I'm going to pour out my glory and everyone's going to be wrong, here's what I think he meant. Finally, I figured it out. Here's what I think he meant. I think he meant that none of us have fully understood his goodness. That at some point, his church is going to get how good he is. And that is what's going to bring us into unity. Now, there's an interesting verse in Romans 2, verses 3 and 4. And uh, before I read this, I want to tell you that I believe this passage is describing a person that lacks both essential revelations. They have not had a, a revelation of God's holiness, and they have not had a revelation of God's goodness. What does a person like that look like? Romans 2, verses 3 and 4. And do you think this, oh man, that you who judge, a lot of judgment going on in our culture today, isn't there? Even in the church even in the church towards the church, right? Which is kind of the opposite of unity, isn't it? And do you think, oh man, you who judge those practicing and such things and doing the same, now understand, we may not be doing the thing that we're judging someone else for, but I guarantee you, you go through uh, Sermon on the Mount and you see how God keeps shifting actions to heart issues, in our hearts, we're doing the same stuff. We've all done it. Uh, maybe not all of them, but enough of them. So we end up judging people on stuff that our heart is impure on. We just maybe haven't done it like they've done it or done it as bad as they've done it. Right? And so, uh, he says, uh, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same that you will escape the judgment of God. They don't have that first revelation of the holiness of God, that we are all equally guilty of sin. It gets really hard to judge other people when you're aware of your position before God's holiness, doesn't it? All right? Now, by the way, I am not saying we excuse sin. Amen. We do not. Uh, in fact, I, you'll note I quit reading in Exodus 34, 7 after the good stuff. The very next line is, by no means clearing the guilty. So God doesn't excuse sin. We don't excuse sin. But we don't have to speak judgment on every sin we see. Our hearts can be full of God's goodness. Notice that God spent seven words on his goodness and then said, but I, I don't excuse the guilty. He will execute justice, but he'd much rather do one of the first seven, right? And that's all that he's calling us to is let's, let's be that kind of guy. So... And then he goes on, or you, do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? We should ponder that. Do we despise that? Do we hate when God's good to the wicked? You ever pray a get him God prayer? Don't raise your hand. Now, we wouldn't do that, right? You guys probably wouldn't. You know, get him God He goes, what if I don't want to get them? What if I want to bless them? What if I want to show them my goodness? Well, God, I hate that. I despise that. I want you to get them. But what if my goodness will lead them to repentance? Are you sure it will? Well, no, they can still choose. Well, then I think you should get them. I think they'll (laughs) repent if you get them. Well, that's not how I did it, Tony. Remember, I came to the earth. You know how sinners like to hang out with me, Tony? You know why? It's because I healed them. And I fed them, and I encouraged them, and I never once pardoned the guilty. I never once compromised. I just revealed my goodness, right? Don't despise, don't hate my goodness. It'll lead them to repentance. And if it doesn't, then nothing will. Not your predicting their doom in hell necessarily, right? It might get them to repent for a minute, but I've found fear isn't a real lasting motivator. You with me? So the point of this whole thing was this, that we do need two essential revelations about the Trinity, that God is holy and that God is good. But the point I feel like he was trying to make when he elaborated on verse 22 for me, uh, was that the second revelation, way more than the first, will unify the church. That The church will unify a lot more under the goodness of God than under uh, the scariness of God. Does that make sense? So, how will Jesus answer, I'm sorry, how will the Father answer Jesus' prayer? We should speculate on that. That's what I was doing, and I got this whole conversation with God. How will the Father answer Jesus' prayer? I think it looks something like this tying all this up, and you can go ahead and bring the band back up if you want to. I think it looks something like this. I think the church will manifest his fullness in the earth by learning to love like him through dwelling together in him and beholding his goodness. Now, I wrote that down in your notes in case that was too much to remember. But that's what I think. I think the church We'll begin to manifest the fullness of Christ by learning to love like him. And the way we're going to do that is by dwelling together, not each of us individually, dwelling together in him and beholding his goodness. Does that make sense? So here's my plan for Church on the Rock. My plan is let's do the things like prayer and worship to get the presence of God Then let's all run in there together, and then let's look for his goodness and see if we're changed from glory to glory as we behold it. That's my plan. It's pretty simple. Let's just keep doing it and see what happens. Uh, And not just on Sunday morning. At home church, uh, house church, go ahead and run into his presence together. Uh, In our prayer meetings during the week, let's get in his presence and run in there together. And look for his goodness and see what happens. Right now, as we go back into worship, let's look for his goodness. Just like he did in the earth, help heal the sick, encourage people, set people free, that kind of thing. I think if we do that enough, if we just keep going into him together and seeing his goodness, we'll start expressing the love of God more. I think it'll change us. I think we'll be transformed from glory to glory as we behold that. It's just just my plan. You with me? Good plan? All right.